ready in the Cart Bibles on page 1013. James today really is wrapping up uh, the section that he began, the section that we looked at last week when Pastor Jerry was preaching on two different kinds of wisdom, wisdom from above and wisdom of the world. What we'll see today in these two short verses are, uh, is really a, uh, a summary, an application, if you will, uh, of what we read there and studied there last week. So let's turn our attention to the Lord's Word found in James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. Let's go to him in prayer. Let's ask that he would apply its timeless truth to our hearts and lives. O gracious Lord and God, giver of all good things, you have given us your word. And unless uh, you give us your spirit, even this living and active word that will fall on deaf ears and hard hearts. So enliven us even today, we pray. We thank you for the indwelling spirit that lives and dwells within believers, those who have called upon you and been regenerated by that work of your spirit. We pray that this would be part of your regenerating uh, work in us as well. Continue uh, to build us up and strengthen us unto new life, and to continue uh, in perseverance. We ask these things in your name. Amen. There is no better way to be reminded of who you are not, than to attempt to do something that you cannot do. That's a complicated statement. Uh, But let me give you an example. There's no better way to be reminded of who you are not than to attempt to do something that you cannot do. Uh, As many of you know, my wife uh, is very crafty. Not in the sense that she is... Uh, full of guile and, uh, and shifty, but she's really good with handicrafts. Uh, she can knit, she can sew, she uh, decorates our house with all sorts of, of beautiful little things. She's very crafty. Um, and soon after Neil was born, uh, I decided that all this knitting my wife is doing really doesn't look all that hard. I bet I could make a hat for Neil. Just a small hat. Sarah at the time was making these little square ones. She could knock them out in about, I don't know, half an hour. Uh, I mean, just these little square hats that look like they have little ears on them. They're super cute. Anyway, uh, I thought I could do that. I'll pick up a a couple needles, and Sarah will show me what I need to do, and I'll have that hat done in no time. Well, uh, I tried and failed miserably and came away from that experience saying, I am not crafty. I am not nearly as crafty as my wife. Maybe you've had a similar circumstance. Uh, You left the links for the first time, convinced that you are not a golfer, despite your best intentions. Or you tried tofu and decided you could never be a vegetarian. Whatever it is, you've probably had an experience like that. No better way to remember who you are not than to try and do something that you cannot do. Well, James today is telling us that we need to remember that we are not the Lord. And we need 
uh, not to try to do what only the Lord can do. There is only one lawgiver, says James. We should not attempt to do what only the lawgiver does. This is a reminder today of our place. This is a reminder of our limits. And it's all about this warning about the sin of judgmentalism. The basic message that James is going to give us today is that slanderous speech is arrogant evil. Now, it may be tempting to look at this passage uh, and to think that this is something that surely we are not guilty of. This isn't something that we're doing, but that's kind of the nature of of the speech that James is talking about here. We can see that in the way that he approaches the whole thing. I love the way James does this, because he's kind of like some of those parents that I've seen in our congregation that take those moments that uh, I would look at and just think outward behavior, and they take their child aside and they teach them this grand truth. Notice that James is not just dealing with outward behavior here when he's talking about the sin of judgmentalism, is he? Notice that he's not taking the people aside and saying, now, now, now. Speaking badly about other people will hurt their feelings. He doesn't tell them that uh, if you talk about enough people behind their backs, that, uh, that people are going to start wondering what you say when they're not around. He doesn't tell us that, uh, that spreading rumors will cause divisions in the church. Of, of course, it, it's not that those things aren't true. It's not that those things aren't important. In fact, James has already mentioned a few of those, hasn't he? Didn't he tell us in, uh, in chapter 3, he warned us about the power of the tongue to cause harm to others. He warned us in chapter 2 about the necessity of loving our neighbor. He warned us in in chapter 4, even this very chapter, about uh, the terrible reality of factions and quarrels in the church. But those things are not what James has in mind here. James isn't primarily telling us that the danger of malicious speech, of harsh words, uh, not that it's just an outwardly destructive thing, But the primary danger that uh, that James has in mind is the kind of inwardly destructive practice that we tend to let ourselves get away with. He uses this word. I I think the ESV does a good job, although they're actually inserting the word evil. Um, The the word in the Greek is do not speak against. It's it's very plain. It's very simple. Uh, But they're helping us to understand. This is what it means here. Do not speak evil against one another. And what James has in mind is is speech that is accusatory. It's judgmental. It's disdainful. The kind of speech that's sometimes uh, outwardly slanderous. This kind of talking against someone writes them off as incompetent or inconsequential. It takes others and it subjects them to, uh, to your standards. It weighs them in the balance of your own personal standards and it finds them woefully lacking. That's the kind of talk that James has in mind here. That's what it really looks like to speak against a brother or a sister in Christ. That's what it really looks like if we're honest with ourselves. But all too often when this kind of language shows up on our lips or even in our hearts, we are not all that honest with ourselves, are we? We wouldn't call it judgmentalism or pride when we do it. Uh, We would simply say, I don't know, righteous indignation. 
certainly not judgmental. We, we wouldn't say that we're being disdainful. We wouldn't say that we're writing somebody off. We're just frustrated. We just have something we have to get off of our chest. I wonder if you've ever uh, been in a situation where you're talking to someone and you're talking about a third person. And through the course of the conversation, you start hearing the things that are coming out of your own mouth about that other person. You realize that they're pretty terrible, pretty harsh, not really justified. But instead of owning up to it, you, you say something like, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to complain, I just needed to vent. Thanks for listening. Don't, don't say anything that I told you. Don't repeat anything. If you've ever found yourself having to qualify your statements like that, you've probably been engaging in exactly the kind of talk that James is talking about here. And let's call it what it is. Let's call it speaking evil against one another. This is what James is warning us about. And it doesn't matter, does it, that the person that you are venting about never gets to hear your tirade. After all, you were just talking to your spouse, right? If there's anybody you can be honest with about your frustrations, it's your wife or your husband. If anybody wants to know what's, what's frustrating you, it should be him or her. They're the person you can go to with these things without edging into that nasty territory of, of gossip or backbiting, right? And sure, your, your kids may have been in the backseat of the car for the entire 20-minute ride home from worship that week while you were just berating that person, but they never listen to anything you say anyway. But it doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter if you've spoken those words to one person or to a thousand. The damage of your damning language has already been done. Your accusations... And this is what James is warning us about here. He's reminding us that judgmentalism is not a perpetratorless crime. It's not the kind of thing that just materializes and just happens and who knows where it comes from. He's reminding us that harsh words don't even have to be heard to have their ill effect. Because these kinds of words, this, this kind of sinful speech, whether it's spoken or not, is a virus that kills from the inside. He's reminding us that judgmentalism harms the judge more than it does the defendant. We might ask, well, well how could that be? <clears throat> but, but we've seen what James has been saying about this sin of slanderous speech. His warning is not for those that are being spoken about, but his warning is for those that are doing the speaking. He's saying it's dangerous to you. It's a dangerous thing, this sin of judgmentalism. It might not seem that way, but it is no small matter. Its ultimate goal is not just to size people up or to put them down. The ultimate goal of judgmentalism and slanderous speech is to take God's place. That's what judgmentalism does. That's why it's so dangerous, because judgmentalism usurps God's right to judge, tries to take over for his rightful place as a lawgiver. And James gives us this process that happens. It starts with speaking about a brother or a sister, and it moves to speaking about the law, and then it goes to rejecting the one lawgiver. And I want you to, to follow me with this progression for a little bit. Uh, James says first that when we 
have this kind of speech, especially about a brother or a sister in the church, a fellow believer, it rejects the law's authority. Now, maybe you're asking the question that I was asking on Monday or Tuesday. What does the law have to do with anything here? Uh, But probably what James has in mind is this law of love. This law of love that he called the royal law back in chapter 2. It's been a while since we've been there, uh, but it's over on the the left side of the page. Uh, If you've got your ESV open, chapter 2, verses 8 through 13, we won't read it, but you recall there uh, that the people had become judges with evil motives. They'd become judges with evil motives by using others to further their own selfish agendas, their own sense of self-importance. And the remedy to their judgment was to remember and to live out this royal law of loving their neighbor rather than judging them. Well, the language here in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, is strikingly similar to all that language. We see three times, judge, 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 it shows up. There's this cluster of vocabulary that reminds us of chapter 2. And so the same kind of idea is probably in play here. That when we callously judge others... We act as if the law does not apply to us. We act as though we are the special case that is outside the long reach of God's kingdom law, this law that should be the mark of true believers, of loving one another, of serving one another, of caring for one another. And yet we look at others and we put them down, maybe even in our minds or in our hearts, or maybe we say it behind their backs. And what we're doing, in effect, is saying, that law doesn't apply to me. I don't have to love that person. And we reject the law and its authority. And incidentally, it it actually makes sin and wrongdoing more about us and less about the Lord and his standards and decrees. It begins to elevate us and our importance. When we judge a brother or sister, we judge the law acting as though we were outside of its commands, rather than hearing the law so that we may learn to do it. As chapter 1 told us, uh, we hear the law and we reject it when we judge a brother or a sister in Christ. And of course, the sin of judgmentalism would be bad enough if it stopped there. It's just a, a rejection of this law that God has given his people to love one another. But it doesn't stop there. It can't stop there. Because when we judge the law, we necessarily judge the lawgiver, the one who has told us and given these commands. It goes a step further. Our judging one another really rejects the lawgiver's right to judge. You know, the funny thing about laws uh, is that they only have power where they are enforced. We prayed this morning for believers in Indonesia. And there in Indonesia, they have a constitution and they have laws that say there is religious freedom. And yet, very often, those laws are simply not enforced. And so the government will look the other way, and people will be persecuted. And the law has no real power. It might be there, but it's, it's a moot point. Laws only have power where they're enforced. In fact, you, you know this concept, don't you? That's why you know that there is a stretch of road near your house or near your work that if you're running a little bit late, nobody's going to know if you put the pedal to the metal. Nobody's going to know because the cops never sit there. There's nobody writing tickets, so yeah, there may be a sign that says 35, but 55, 65, who cares? You're in a hurry. 
and there's nobody to write the tickets, so the law might as well just not even be there. There was a road like that when, uh, in Pennsylvania where Sarah and I lived before we came to seminary, uh, before we came to New England. It was long and it was straight. It was heavily wooded, uh, and there was nowhere to hide a police car. And sometimes when I would roll out of bed later than I should have to be at my 6 a.m. shift, I knew nobody else was going to be on the road anyway. And you would be amazed how fast a little green Chevy pickup truck can go when you push it. You see, if there's nobody writing the tickets, you might as well be driving on the Autobahn. Who cares if there's a speed limit? The law only has power where it's being enforced. And no one was enforcing it. Here's the thing about our judgmentalism. Sometimes the reason that we judge others is because it feels as though they've just blown past us at 90 miles an hour and cut us off, and it looks like God is just going to let them get away with it. Like we're on this lone back road and nobody cares and nobody's watching, and we have to defend ourselves, don't we? Our indignation and our personal offenses can make us feel as though we've got to take a deputy star and pin it to our shirt and enforce all these rules that, uh, that God has somehow allowed to be transgressed. Just think about the last time someone offended you and you thought to yourself, they're going to get away with that sort of thing. I can't let that happen. I can't let them get away with uh, rubbing my face in the dirt. I can't let them get one over on me. And what we're doing is trying to assume that God was not enforcing a law, and so we have to instead. This is what Jerry Bridges, uh, pastor, reminds us of. He says, The seriousness of the sin of judgmentalism is not so much that I judge my brother, as that, in doing so, I assume the role of God. Here's the danger of judgmentalism. We're taking on God's rightful place and his rightful role. That's what's so dangerous about it. And isn't that the height of arrogance? Doesn't judgmentalism toward our fellow Christians attempt to take God off of his seat of judgment and put ourselves in his place? There is only one lawgiver, James tells us, and you are not him. Only one with the power to acquit or the power to condemn, and yet in the arrogance of our judgment, we attempt to take his place. We reject the lawgiver's right to judge when we take that responsibility on ourselves. And here's the bottom line. Here's where all of this ends up. Not just that we speak against our brother and sister. Not just that we speak against the law. Not just that we reject God's right to judge. But it makes us an enemy of God. I mentioned before we read that this is a fitting conclusion to the passage that we read before. Didn't I? Uh, And this is where James has been heading all along. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, uh, is all talking about contrasting the wisdom that comes from above, from God, with the wisdom that is of the world. The wisdom that comes from above is humble. It's lowly. It draws near to God. It resists the devil. But the wisdom that's found in the world is proud. It is arrogant. It is selfish. And it rejects God and his rightful authority. It embraces the world and it makes an enemy of God. 
You see, the sin of judgmentalism is a perfect example of the wisdom of the world at work. In the best case scenario, when we speak against a brother or a sister, we make ourselves no better than the world. We're not going to turn there, but you could look later in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, or 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 and through 16. And Peter's going to use the same exact word translated here, uh, speaking against, speaking evil against. There it's going to show up as slander, but it's the same word. And what he's doing is warning the believers that there will be unbelievers who will speak against them. And what they need to do is keep their manner of life and conduct pure. So that when they are slandered, they will show by their good conduct that they were false accusations. So what we do when we speak against our brothers and sisters is we make ourselves an enemy of the Lord. And in the best case scenario, we are no better than the rest of the world. But in the worst case scenario, we are exactly like the devil. Didn't that show up in the previous passage in James? Draw near to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Perhaps you recall that the very name Satan means the adversary. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He's the one who speaks against God's people. And so what James is saying here is do not become an enemy of the Lord by judging your brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't be like Satan. Don't be like the devil. He's been an accuser from the beginning. So you see, uh, judgmentalism is no small thing. It's no perpetratorless crime. It's no mere slip of the tongue. It is rebellion. It is rejection of God and of his authority. It is enmity and it is strife with the, law, with the one lawgiver. This is what James has been telling us, that slanderous speech is an arrogant evil. Now, what can be done about it? What's the remedy for this kind of speech? Because I, I bet by now we're all sitting here going, I, I've done that before. I've been there. I, I've said those things. I've felt those things. So what can be done? What do we do? Well, perhaps we can consider the options. And I want to consider them first in terms of opposite extremes. Because one way that, uh, that some believers, some people, some Christians, uh, will try to answer judgmentalism is simply by ignoring sin. Simply ignore it. Don't talk about it. Don't, don't tell anyone about their sin. Don't talk about anybody's sin. Don't talk about your own sin. Uh, if you're a Christian, that's all been taken care of, so don't worry about it. Uh, but that doesn't really work, does it? That doesn't actually keep us from judgmentalism. You'd have to spend all of your time in a fantasy world to think that sin and, and wrongdoing doesn't exist, to just ignore the realities of these things. And it might be easy for you to, to shrug off a snub in the conversation. It might be easy for you to, uh, to get over a snide comment here and there, but what about when sin and wrongdoing come so close that you can no longer ignore it? What do you do if you're a leader in the church and you find out there's abuse in one of the households, uh, families that are members here? You bury your head in the sand and say, well, we don't talk about sin. We don't talk about it. I'm not one to judge, so I won't say anything in that regard. You'd better not do that. Or even worse, what if you're the one that's being abused, the one that's being sinned against? 
Do you just take it? Of course not. You don't just say, well, I'm not one to judge. You see, there are times when sin comes close enough that we cannot ignore it. What do you do when someone breaks a promise to you? When someone lies to your face? You cannot escape judgmentalism by pretending that sin doesn't exist. Sooner or later, wrongdoing will come too close to ignore it, and James would never advise you to try to ignore it anyway. Take a look at the last words of James. Again, if you've got your ESV open, you don't even have to turn the page. It's all the way on the right-hand side of page 1013 at the bottom, chapter 5, verses 19 through 20. This is how James concludes his letter. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So no, James wouldn't tell us that we should just bury our head in the sand and pretend that uh, that sin doesn't exist. He would say it's a virtue to help a sinner find their way. There's got to be some sort of looking at and calling sin what it is. But uh, besides, for most of us, this isn't the direction that we swing. (laughs) For most of us in the evangelical world, and especially the Reformed world, we're not the ones just covering our ears and saying, la, 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 we we don't talk about that sort of thing. We tend to swing in the other direction. And oddly enough, there are lots of people, lots of us, perhaps I should say, that try to counter this sin of judgmentalism uh, by holding everyone to the same high, unattainable standards. You can't ignore sin, so you might as well point it out, and point it out at the slightest drop of a hat. After all, you can't be accused of slandering if you're not talking about someone behind their back, so to go ahead and talk about them to their face. Let them know. Air your grievances. Bring them out. Tell them, hey, you've sinned against me in this very small way, and I need you to know that, that you've transgressed something here, and there's, there's a price to be paid, and, and you get bonus points if you can do it all under the... the the guise of being zealous for the law. But that doesn't work either, does it? Being overly critical of everyone's sin equally does not make you zealous for the law. It makes you a Pharisee. Wasn't that their tack? Wasn't that what they did? They upheld the law. They rebuked sin head on. They put fences around God's command. They invoked scruples and they memorized scripture verses to make their position, the right one. The only way that that sort of thing keeps you from judgmentalism is that no one wants to be around you long enough to hear what you have to say about everybody else. That's not going to keep you from the sin of judgmentalism. And besides, it still makes the law about you. It still makes sin and wrongdoing about your scruples. Because I'll almost guarantee you that if this is the kind of thing you do, that the sins that you feel like you've, you've gained some control over or some victory over are the ones that you point out to others. And the ones that you're still struggling with, well, they never get mentioned. You see, it still becomes a comparison, doesn't it? It still becomes this judgmentalism, this slanderous speech, this arrogant evil where we're trying to take over God's position. Still an attempt to take God off of his rightful seat of judgment. So we need something else. We need something balanced. We need something that takes sin into account, but it doesn't allow it to eclipse our view of everyone around us. Some approach that doesn't make righteousness about our standards of performance. And here's the answer, I think. The answer to judgmentalism is to treat fellow believers as you have been treated. 
with mercy that has triumphed over the judgment that you deserve. That was also James' conclusion uh, in chapter 2. Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. When we come to chapter 4, we need to ask the same question that James is asking, who are you to judge your brothers and sisters in Christ? Who are you? Well, you're a sinner, but a sinner saved by grace. You're one who was dead in your sins and your trespasses, yet one whom God has raised to glorious life in his beloved Son. This is where we need to start, by asking the question, who am I? And especially because James is writing to believers here. This is a question for believers, not just who are you, but who are you in Christ, to judge your brothers and sisters. Because if you haven't experienced this, you can't really get to the point where you can do this. If you've not experienced this kind of mercy, how can you be expected to give this kind of mercy? How can you be expected to do anything other than uh, put everyone else uh, to your standards? You see, it's only when we're convinced that God has gone to great lengths to deal with our sin that we can stop going to great lengths to deal with everyone else's sin. We have no need to protect our pride only when it's already been laid low in the dust of Christ's mercy and grace for us. And far from becoming an enemy of God, we can rest in the friendship of God and the humility that draws near to Him rather than the arrogance that tries to replace Him. It goes back to this idea of of being merciful as you've received mercy. And incidentally, this is how we can best love our neighbor. Not by just imagining that sin doesn't exist, but by meeting sin with mercy. Because from time to time, situations will invariably arise where you are sinned against. Situations that you will need to deal with. Those situations call for a compassionate word rather than a callous one. It's only with the gospel of our salvation in Christ that we are prepared to meet those situations with grace. I'd like you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, where we'll see Paul say basically the same thing. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 25 through 32. You'll notice some of the same kinds of vocabulary that we've been using here. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members with one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Along with all malice, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. 
This is the answer. This is the answer Paul's giving it to us here, but this is the answer to the sin of judgmentalism. How do we deal with it? Well, with the humility that comes only from knowing that we have received mercy from God in Christ. By knowing who we are in Him and, and knowing who those are that are around us. Also sinners, also saved by grace, also those who are dead and yet raised together with Christ. We, we meet this with the humility that recognizes ourselves and those around us. This is what I think James is telling us today, that slanderous speech is an arrogant evil. But humility speaks with kindness to fellow fumblers. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we have no right to come before you by the work of our own hands. But you have given grace upon grace. You have multiplied mercy upon mercy through Jesus Christ, your Son. And so we come and not only receive your word, but we will receive your sacrament, uh, your word presented visually for us, that we may feast upon Christ by our hearts in faith in him. Help us, O Lord, uh, to be humble as he was humble. Give us that mind that was Christ that uh, did not exalt himself, but humbled himself, made himself a servant. Give us that humility. Help us to realize that you are the only lawgiver. Help us to come to you knowing that you have given us all things, and all things are owed to you. Humble us, we pray. Give us the grace of Christ to do that and the power of your spirit today, we ask in your name. Amen. If ever we forget who we are, this is the table that reminds us. This is the table that reminds us of our great need for mercy because it doesn't proclaim that we come here and do something for ourselves, but something is done for us. A gift is given, bread broken and, and wine poured out for you, just as Christ's body was broken and his blood poured out for you. To pay a price that you never could, a mercy that you needed, a mercy without which you would be lost. And so if you know who you are in Christ, if you've professed who you are in Christ and joined a church that loves God's word and teaches his gospel, then come to this table. You don't have to be a member of the Presbyterian Church in America. We do ask that you'd be a member, a baptized member in good standing of a local body. Because that's one way that, uh, that you know, and the church knows, who you are, a sinner saved by grace. And so if that's you, come. And if that's not you, we'd ask that you would refrain, that you would allow the elements pass, uh, to watch and to contemplate, who are you? Who is God calling you to be in Christ? I'm going to pray, and then we'll read the words of institution together and come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. O oh, gracious God, our Lord, you have given us your Son. Having given us your Son, will you not also give us all things that are necessary uh, for life and godliness? Will you not also bind us up and strengthen us with the power of your Spirit, your Comforter, your Redeemer? So, O oh Lord, we, we pray that you would help us to feed on him today. Though these elements will not change, they'll still be uh, bread and a cup. There won't be any mystical change here at the table, but we pray that there would be a mystical change in our hearts. 
that you would allow us to feast on Christ by faith. Raise us up so that we would feast on him where he is seated at your right hand in the heavenly places. Lord, this is a promise we have from you and we come to you and, and we pray, Lord. Would you allow us to see and feast upon him, we ask in your name. Amen. We're reading the words of institution.